Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much that we can be here together. Thank you for the way that you have been alive and present throughout this service. Now as we take this extended time just to feed on your living words, we have the same expectation as we've had all along, that you would meet us and you would change us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the science of cherry blossom prediction is in full swing. (laughs) Last couple months, the National Park Service has been working overtime, examining mathematic models, weather forecasting models. Uh, An unusually warm February set the initial peak in the mid-March, but then we had some colder weather. It got bumped to April 1st, and now, does anybody know the peak date? April 10th, that's right. That's the latest, April 10th. And uh, thankfully, last week's snow, uh, the buds weren't far enough along to be damaged. Now, you would think, what's the big deal with trees? Um, If you're new to Washington, you might think, well, these folks make a big deal out of this. Well, it is a big deal with 1.5 million people visiting, a revenue of $160 million coming into the metro area, not to mention the history and the legacy of the gift that was given to America. Um, There's a lot riding on it, but apparently not as much as a fig tree. There was more riding on a fig tree. In Jesus' perspective, this is probably the miracle that raises the biggest questions for people. All of Jesus' miracles up to this point are about blessing people. His miracles heal. His miracles feed. His miracles deliver people from bondage. But this one, he curses And if anything, he picks on a poor little tree. What is it? Is Jesus having a hunger tantrum? Is the pressure just finally getting to him? All the stupid questions from his disciples, and he just zaps a tree and says, I I just got to do this? Is the spiritual lesson we're to learn today, when the Son of God wants a fig, you better give him a fig? (laughs) What is it? We're meant to know. Well, thankfully... If we spend a little bit of time looking at the context, there is more to it, more to what God has provided. A little background can go a long way. In fact, if we go back, 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 all the way to the book of Genesis, we begin to get some insight to what's going on here. When God created the man and the woman, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, that meant more than just go have babies. He meant in the areas of your talent and your creativity and your work, flower the earth. Develop, cultivate what I have given to you. Be fruitful. Most of all, be fruitful in your relationships, your love of God, and your love of neighbor. You see, it's possible to achieve a whole lot and still have a fruitless life. And so the question we'll look at this evening is, what does fruitlessness look like, and what does fruitfulness look like? Because that's where this miracle takes us. 
So picture, first of all, the picture of fruitfulness in life. Now we read Jesus comes to find uh, this fig tree, there are leaves but no fruit. But Mark, in his gospel, says it wasn't time for the figs yet. But if we look into it a little bit more deeply, what he means, it wasn't time for the ripe figs. Typically, when you came up on a tree and it had leaves, there would be these little baby uh, unripe figs. They didn't taste great, but it was enough to satisfy hunger. So Jesus comes up to this fig tree expecting, because there's leaves, to find these little figs, doesn't find any, and he curses the fig tree. But again, why does he do it? Now, the disciples are only interested in how he did it. They're sort of like, how did you do that? It was probably a day after they saw it withered. But Jesus wants them to move toward the teaching moment. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's really acting the part of an Old Testament prophet. He's acting out a parable, not unlike when Jeremiah took a clay pot and he smashed it in the presence of Israel and said, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't stop all this injustice and wickedness. Jesus is acting out a parable before us. And knowing something about the immediate context and the historical context will help us get in on what he's saying. First of all, the immediate context. The episode of the fig tree stands right beside another act of judgment. Anybody know what that is? You didn't know I was going to be asking lots of questions today. The cleansing of the temple. The reason I know what it is is because you all uh, pay me to study, uh, like during the week. So there's plenty of questions you could ask me and I wouldn't know, okay? So the cleansing of the temple. And if you know that story, what happens is Jesus heads into the temple, the center of religious life for Israel, and he goes into there, and there's money changers at tables. And the reason they're there is because people had to come and exchange their currency to be able to buy sacrifices to offer But when Jesus walks in, things have gotten way out of hand. There's just all this religious business going on. It looks like a mall. And the worst part about it is they have taken over the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So the one place that non-Jewish people can come and pray and connect with God has been lost. And Jesus is furious about this. What it says about the spiritual life of Israel at that time. And so he picks up a whip and he chases them on out of there. What Jesus saw was outside in the temple, everything looked great, but inside, it didn't look good. It was rotting. There was decay. But how about the historical context? If you do a little study, we come to understand that often one of the metaphors used of Israel is a tree. In fact, a fig tree. Hosea 9, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree. In its first season, I saw your father. Israel had planted, been planted by God. God had planted this fig of a people. But by the time Jesus shows up, especially the religious leaders, have really come to a place where they're very far away from God. But the important thing to see here is the trouble with the fig tree wasn't just that it didn't have fruit. The trouble was it promised fruit with its leaves. And so on the outside, the religious leaders and the people seemed to promise fruit by their behavior, but inside there was no fruit at all. There was no fruit of the soul, fruit of the spirit. 
The religious leaders looked great on the outside. They were dead on the inside. And so there's a judgment of fruitlessness. And it really manifests itself in two ways. There's two deeper problems going on. And they relate to you and I. The first is moral spiritual hypocrisy. What we mean by that is where my main concern is that you see me rather than how I really am. You see the me I'm trying to present to you rather than how I really am in my life. They sell this stuff uh, called privacy window film. And, uh, you know, what it is is if you've got a, a window that's exposed that you don't want people looking in, you can put this film over it, and during the day, people can't really make out what's inside. Well, the truth is many of us live with that film over our lives, right? We've got that film over our lives, so, so if I try to look in or you try to look in, we can't really see what's going on inside. You can't see that I'm in bondage to bitterness or envy. You can't see that I'm in bondage to some addiction. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's food. Whatever it would be. And when we live with that moral spiritual hypocrisy, we live with this low-level anxiousness where we're just always trying to keep up appearances. In the things that we say, in the things that we do, it's very hard to rest with other people. Any conversation we have, we're constantly jostling back and forth in our mind of how, do I, how did that sound? How, do I, how did I look? What was it like? And like the religious leaders, we can be quick to be defensive when people begin to poke in on that stuff. We feel threatened by them. You know, the thing about that privacy film I was talking about is you can't see him, but light still gets in. And light still gets into our film that we put over our lives, thankfully. But the reason that light is shining is not because God wants to expose you as a fraud and just go, fraud! He wants you to feel the warmth of what it means to be accepted through His Son. Accepted in Christ through the Gospel. If you and I are going to be delivered from hypocrisy, there's a couple steps that need to happen. If you're going to get to transparency, you first have to have this confidence that as you are naked before the one who sees everything, you're still accepted and beloved. And this was the point of Jesus Christ coming. That you and I might be able to stand in the light. That we might begin to develop a healthy transparency. That we wouldn't fall prey to hypocrisy but the second manifestation of the fruitlessness is religious activity versus spiritual intimacy. Religious activity versus spiritual intimacy. Uh, and this is because, um, well, think about the temple for a second. At the temple, there was a lot of activity, but there was no prayer going on. The fig tree, there are a lot of leaves, but there are no figs. In all honesty, one of the best ways to avoid God is through religion. It's one of the best ways to avoid God, to keep your heart from Him, because you can have this feeling that I'm in there and that I'm in relationship with Him, but the truth is you're not. Because there's not an intimacy, a one-to-one -one connection. And the reason we head into this is because we have a worldly view of fruitfulness rather than a kingdom of God view of fruitfulness. 
We understand fruitfulness like the world. We're experts, really, when it comes to worldly fruitfulness. We've figured out the game. We've figured out a way to do what we need to do to be successful in the world. Many people that come to Washington, D.C., well, that, that's sort of the game we're trying to do, right? <laughs> trying to figure that out. And if we hit that point, we begin to believe, well, then I'm fruitful. And it's that point God says, no, you're not fruitful. Jesus says that fruitfulness comes from abiding in him. He says this in John 15. Now, that word abiding, that means to remain. And remain means to spend time. You know, have you ever had someone say to you or you've said to them, you know, can you stay a little while? You know, don't rush off, but can you stay a little bit? And when they do, I'll tell you, it's such a gift, right? Their presence is there. And they are with us. And God says the same thing to you and I. Can you stay a while? Can we commune together? Can we build some in intimacy together? I went this past week to an event hosted by Ministry to State, and uh, Skip Ryan was there. Some of you know Skip from a couple years ago. He spoke uh, at our retreat, and Skip has a powerful testimony that I won't go into here, but a testimony where he, in a very public way, had his veil pulled out, his hypocrisy pulled out. And now, I tell you, he speaks in a way that is so uh, powerful and helpful. And uh, anytime I sit before Skip, I'm like, man, oh man, where has my heart been? And he was asking for responses, and I found myself saying, you know, I, I, I kind of snack on God. I nibble on God. I don't really feast on God. This idea of having a relationship where we're, you know, eating. I'm taking in God in that way. Like a wonderful feast. What would it be like if you and I measured not our activity, but our intimacy with God? Right? That would look very different. I think our tendency is to say, I did this this week. I showed up at church. I woke up and I did five minutes here and five minutes here. But anybody that's in a really close friendship or a marriage, you know that doesn't quite work. Early on in uh, my marriage, Meg would uh, bring up feeling like we're not connected, we're not intimate. And what I would do is immediately recount to her my schedule. <laughs> I would say, well, you know, what are you talking about? I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't out uh, doing church stuff, you know, these three other nights. Uh, I was home for dinner on these nights. Uh, you know, on the day off, I, you know, we, we actually went and did something. Remember that? I took you out. I, I didn't hear the point. You know, what she was saying was not activity, it's intimacy. How do you and I, and, and I, I listened to Skip, I was like, man, it's really frightening to me how I can sort of not engage my heart with God. I don't know what it's like for you. Is there an open-heartedness with Him? Do I sort of, you know, is there this free-flowing thing that happens? When Jesus talked to the religious leaders about prayer, they loved to pray in public, activity. He said, when you pray, disciples, I want you to go to a quiet place where no one can see you because that's where we'll see the intimacy is really at. And so the Lord calls His people into that sort of fruitfulness. And He makes it possible because the Gospel teaches that Jesus bore the curse on the tree. The fig tree really didn't bear the curse. Jesus Christ on the cross 
The scripture said, cursed is anybody that's hung on a tree, that's crucified in the way he was. He bore the curse for you and I for our lack of fruitfulness and our lack of intimacy with God. That we might get safe access to him. Unconditional access to God. This is what this is where fruitfulness begins. So let's turn to this second point of what fruitfulness looks like. The first thing it looks like is repentance. Repentance. Uh, the difference between authentic Christians and religious people is religious people can't repent. Uh, irreligious people don't really care about repenting, but religious people can't repent because repentance is always bitter. Religious people are all about the business, actually, of doing their best to never be in a position where they have to repent. You know, they're always sort of defending themselves and doing all the right things. So no one could say, excuse me, I have something to bring to you. But Jesus said his disciples would be different. He talks about it in the parable of the two sons, right? There are two sons. Uh, the youngest son totally squanders his inheritance, blows off his father, offends him in the worst time. But what? He knows how to repent. He repents to the father and he experiences the father's lavish love and his favor and his restoration. The elder brother doesn't know how to repent. And so he stays out of the house. He can't bring his bitter heart to God and really own up to it. For Christians, repentance can be sweet because of the grace of God. So John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus, says to the religious leaders, back in Matthew 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. One of the ways that the religious leaders tried to avoid intimacy with God and repentance was to play the legacy card. Hey, we're descendants of Abraham. That's what their confidence was in. You know, we live in a town where we know a lot about connections. If I got the right connections, I can get a nice tour at the Capitol, or maybe I can get here at the White House or get a meeting here. But the gospel says there's only one connection you must have, and that's through Jesus Christ. And no one will be in heaven that knows God indirectly. You know, the old uh, cliche quote is, there will be no grandchildren in heaven. Right? No one's going to be in there because they knew someone else and God said, you know, uh, oh, come on in. You were friends and you were nice to this person I really like. That isn't how it works. Another substitute for that repentance can be insight. Once Meg and I were doing some counseling and the pastor said, um, he, he, he spoke something into our lives and we both kind of went, yeah, interesting. And he said, uh, Insight is not repentance, right? And we can live that way. We can, you know, we can, especially in a, sort of a, a theological tradition that thinks a lot about the head, it could be, well, yes, I, I get that. But that's not repentance either. John says, keep fruit in keeping with repentance. When Zacchaeus, the swindler, repented, he didn't just say, I'm sorry, Jesus. He paid back even what, more than what the law expected when Martin Luther, you know, we celebrated in the fall, the, uh, was it the 500th anniversary? When he went up there on the door of Wittenberg and put up his 95 theses, complaints against the church, 
The very first one is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That means we don't repent once, but we repent often, and we bear fruit of it, and we have new repentances. And the Bible tells us in heaven, whenever we repent, I'll tell you, sometimes you really got to hold on to that because you're like, if I repent, this person could just hate me, lay into me even further. You got to be able to hear the applause of heaven. You got to be able to see the smile on God's face that someone trusts in his grace enough to say, I repent. Who do you need to repent to? That's where your fruit bearing will start this week. Who do you need to repent to? Second of all, fruitfulness looks like grace-shaped morality. I didn't just say morality, grace-shaped morality. There's lots of people that are moral. In fact, uh, you know, a Christian's job isn't so much to be moral. There are many other religions and other people and people that are not Christians and people that have no faith that are more moral than me. Jesus didn't come to make nice people. He came to make new people. He didn't come to die to make people good. He came to make them alive, right? And so, grace-shaped morality looks different than fig tree morality. In Galatians 5, Paul has this list of what he calls works of the flesh. In Romans 7, you could call it fruit that leads unto death. And he mentions some things that would be obvious, sexual immorality, someone that's drunkenness that goes on and all those things. But then he gets into stuff that people don't see. Envy, rivalry, divisiveness. And as you begin to think about those things and look at the capital C church, the church is rife with that poison fruit. I've talked to those of you that have been in churches that have been full of that division in bitterness. And we're not immune to it as well. But the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And how do you get that fruit? If you try willpower, I promise you, you're going to have this experience where you're smiling, gritting your teeth, and you have to like run out the door and go, you know, I hate this person. You know, it'll work out. You're, you're really nice. You know, maybe you have that relative visiting or you're visiting the relative. We always think it's the relative visiting us, but the, what people think about us when we visit them, <laughs> right? You show up and, you know, you're, you, and then finally it's day three where it's like, Pow! why does that happen? Well, we were gritting our teeth. But how does it happen? Well, grace-shaped means, the book of Galatians is all about the gospel of grace. When you understand the overwhelming love of God for you, when your heart is flooded with this peace that I'm fully acceptable to him because of what Jesus Christ did on my behalf, when I'm so aware of his goodness, when my eyes are just on it, when I can go, man, you know, I've taken, I've kind of been rekindling something in my life, and that is trying to write down things that I'm thankful for. And when you do that, you know, you start to, you know, thank you for this yesterday, and thank you. You just see the goodness of God. And when that hits you, it overflows to other people. That's how it happens. The fruitfulness of God bears fruit in our lives. Thirdly, fruitfulness looks like loving correction and discipline. This one, I think, takes us a little bit by surprise. 
And by that, you understand the Bible makes a big difference between corrective discipline and punitive discipline. Punitive discipline is judgment for sin, guilt. The Bible says that Christ takes all that on the cross. He's punished for those that believe in Him. God comes and takes your guilt and your sin. But there is still corrective love. And what does that look like? Sometimes we try to divine and say, well, maybe it's because I sinned this way and God's getting me back. It might be experiencing some consequences, but the book of Hebrews says hardship. I mean, hardship can just come. You didn't do anything, right? Hardship just comes in your life. God is using all these means, what? To, to, to shape us into the moral beauty of a son. And so this is the idea of Discipline. It says in the book of Hebrews, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's an important thing to hear. So right now, if you feel like God is really trying me, I feel like I'm in a place of hardship and difficulty, and I don't like it. You shouldn't like it. It's painful. But rather, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. It's a training process. Later, Jesus says, you know, those that hear the word and hold fast in an honest, good heart bear fruit. And so loving correction is another way that God bears fruit in our lives. Do you see how different this is than what the world offers us? Just a couple things I've said. Repentance, grace-shaped morality, and discipline and hardship. You know, think about, second, how are you trying to be fruitful right now at this time in your life, whether it's in your relationships, your social life, your career, how are you trying to go about it? Is it these things that you believe will lead to fruit? Because it all ends with a wonderful promise. You know, I was studying about fruitfulness this week, and, you know, I, I, I was interested in, like, really big harvest or fruitfulness, so I was directed to the Washington State Tree Fruit Association. Washington State Tree Fruit Association. And they talked about having, you know, their second largest harvest in history. Take a guess. Take a guess. What's that? Anybody? A million, a million bushels. Thank you. A million bushels. Thank you, Hudson. <laughs> Anybody from the great state of Washington? I'm not going to call you out. All right, we've got a couple of those people. This... This should be your pride, this moment. 137.4 million boxes yielding, get ready, hold on to your seats, 10 to 12 billion apples in a year. It's mind-boggling. I mean, is it just me? 10 to 12 billion apples from one state. It's amazing fruitfulness. I mean, that's just one state. It's amazing. But you know what's something? Whoa. I'm getting too excited here. <laughs> getting too excited. Getting used to this pulpit, too. I mean, anyway. But this, this is the beautiful of the gospel. Listen to this, 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 this promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Did you hear me? 
If you are someone that has put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been connected to God through Jesus Christ, you will bear much fruit. So relax. Stop striving. Stop working so hard. Now, you might have to adjust your view of fruit. Because if you're looking over here and saying, Lord, you know, I'm sort of wanting these poison berries. And he's like, no, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you apples. Washington apples. And there's going to be lots of them. You cannot help but be, because the tree, you know, when's the last time you walked by a tree? Unless it was a Wizard of Oz and you heard, ah, ah, you know, trying to gut out some fruit. It doesn't happen. Because the tree bears fruit. You will bear fruit. And the, the Bible has wonderful things about this. Psalm 1 says that you will bear fruit not only in summer, but in winter. Bear fruit in all seasons. That means the times in my life where I feel like nothing's happening, everything's going wrong, I don't feel like I've got the blessed life, you're bearing fruit. You will bear fruit even into old age, Philippians 1 says. I love talking to saints that are what we would might call old age because they're at their peak. I mean, in a sense, they know how the story's ending. You know, they've already lived through the folly. But they're bearing fruit. We have some saints like that in our congregation. But even in death, you bear fruit. Recently, one of our families uh, went through a, a terrible grief, a loss of a, a baby. It had a genetic disorder, and as it was born, uh, it, didn't, it didn't make birth. But I'll tell you, I have seen such fruit from that child's passing. I've seen such fruit in the lives of their faith, their family, and the lives of others here. Have you ever been to a Christian funeral? I mean, a really good one, right? I was one last year for a guy named Michael Cromerty. Some of you knew him. I mean, it was the room, there was nowhere to sit. There were so many apples in the room, right? So much fruit. The Apostle Paul prays that we would ask more than we could imagine. When you get to heaven, God is going to say, do you see this orchard? I named it after you. I named it after you because this is all the fruit that I was bearing through Christ. And Jesus says, by that faith, you say to a mountain, Go into the sea. Now, he doesn't mean literally. Even back then, that was a metaphor. Okay? Bear in mind, too, you're talking to a mountain. We typically don't talk to inanimate objects. Rather, what he's saying is, unlike the religious leaders and religious culture, my disciples, the inside of the temple needs to be filled with faith. The tree has to be filled with faith. And if it is, extraordinary things, fruitfulness will happen in your life. And so on this Palm Sunday, as we think of palms and green things and the king coming in to his own, the king will return. May no one in this room hear the judgment and the warning saying, you squandered your life, cut the tree down, be thrown in the fire. May everybody in this room here come into my kingdom that I prepared for you. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your commitment to bearing fruit in our lives. We give all the credit to you and to Jesus, the one who is life. We pray for ourselves. Fill us so confidently with the gospel and what you've done that we would bear fruit in Christ's name. Amen.